Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Daily French Show. It is a freezing day in Johannesburg, and I'm joined today by Mr. Marius Roth. Marius, how are you doing? Well, you, Nick. That's pretty cold in Johannesburg. Yeah, no, apart from cold, I'm all good. And also Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And um, I'm pleased to say a little warmer here, sunny for a change, no rain, and um, so things are looking up. Ah, well, must be nice. Um, yeah, uh, that's. Uh, I, I mentioned the cold only because I look like a sort of overstuffed sausage right now because I'm covered in so many pieces of of warm clothing. So if you're watching on YouTube, that is uh, that is why. But um, let's get into the stories of today, and I think the first one to talk about is the one that uh, seems to be on everyone's headlines, and this is, of course, the response to Julius Malema at the EFF's 10th anniversary celebration, singing uh, the chant or the song kill the boer, kill the farmer. Uh, the DA has said that they will be filing charges against Malema and the ANC with the United Nations Human Rights Council. Um, the AFRI Forum says that they're looking into their options. Uh, this is all following on the back of a case before the Equality Court, which we've talked about quite a lot on the show before, where the Equality Court found that uh, this was not incitement to violence, uh, the singing of the song, even in a specific context. Um, which which the case revolved around. Uh, then there's been quite a lot of commentary. Um, there was this Mtinka, uh, Mtama Mtinka, who is a political analyst, said this, which I thought was kind of interesting to talk about. Um, he said that the EFF was backwards, uh, and even though they played a political uh, a, a, a positive role in the political system as a necessary agitation, he called them. Um, that songs that advocate violence, even if there's no link between them and actual acts of violence, have no place in democracy. The reason why there are some people who feel the EFF is justified for those kind of songs is precisely because we have people who oppose the transformation of South Africa. And then he went on to attack the DA and AfriForum, saying they don't help us. AfriForum would be here complaining about kill the Boer, and then they want to display an apartheid flag. These groups do not help South Africa in terms of how they relate to heritage and inclusivity. I call out the EFF because of its backwardness, not to nurse the feelings of AfriForum. So in some ways, this is a bit of an um, old story, but I think the reason that this really has gotten a big way into the news now is because the outside world has taken more of an interest in it. It uh, went a bit viral on Twitter and also called uh, Elon Musk, the owner of Twitter, or the owner of X, as it's now called, um, got involved and asked Sarah Ramaphosa why the government was not doing anything about this to you know, tamp down on this kind of rhetoric. Uh, and the implication, the, the claim made by some of the sort of foreign commentators were that, was that Julius Malema is very directly and unambiguously calling for the genocide of white people in South Africa. <laughs> so um, this is not a debate. This is not the first time we're having this debate, Michael. But uh, what do you make of this whole thing and 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 kind of some of the comments made here by, by political analysts and the foreign media? And what do you take of what, mm. what do you think? I think I mean there, there are a range of different things that I think are worth worth touching on. One of the first might be Elon Musk's response, 
um, little fervid, little overblown. I think using that word genocide uh, is is you know is always tricky. It's a word not to be used lightly, um, and whenever it's used poorly, as I think is true in this case, um, it, what it tends to do is undermine what is a good cause. On the other hand, I think he's absolutely uh, valid in saying that a president of a country or the ruling party of a country does in fact have a stake in expressing a view on the democratic process in that country. And part of the democratic process is the use of free speech, the extent to which people say what they really think. And if this is what Malema really thinks, then it is a public uh, concern. It is something that uh, that is absolutely important and legitimate for a ruling party and even for a president to, to speak about. He is the president of the people that in incorporates all South Africans, and they're looking to him to, to understand how it is that the ANC makes sense of a party, a minority party, tiny party in fact, but which is making these kinds of noises and they are very unsettling, very threatening kinds of noises. Um, the other thought that immediately came to mind when I read that story, well two, a couple of things, I mean I think Ongwama Tinkpa is is has got some, some good points, and I, I, I quite like the fact that he, you know, specifically refers to this as backward politics. So he's not he's not being kind of um, uh, hysterical about it, but putting it clearly in the context of you know this is really backward kind of politics. It's not good for our democratic process and so on. But one of the things that I especially wanted to mention was your show yesterday, which dwelt quite considerably on the weekend, um, the EFF's weekend anniversary uh, rally, very quite a significant event, big crowds and so on. Um, and but you 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 dealt with it in a in a you know it was really a marvel of, of kind of measured, um, considered liberal discourse, which is considered rational, uh, unflustered, uh, unhysterical, um, and I think that that really sets the measure for the kind of debate that a, 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 you know a civilized country wants to have. Actually, you can talk about anything under the sun, and you can do it without um, without without being hysterical. And one of the points um, that I think Terence, uh, our, our colleague Terence Corrigan raised yesterday was in, in, in the show yesterday was that one of the issues with the, with the EFF is that it, it's, its rhetoric and its behavior does tend to undermine our democratic prospects. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an important thing. So kind of looking to the, the future, we can, we can argue about whether this is free speech or hate speech or, or how we should react to it. But nevertheless, and I think it's a point that you've also made, um, Nicholas, I hope you'll, you'll come back to it in this show. That there is a there is a kind of animus that can be generated by these kinds of songs. Um, I think just finally, I mean, the thing that always worries me about the use of that word hate speech is what it tends to do is it 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 at once stimulates and encourages the idea that there are two two kinds of thinking about bad ideas. One is that they can be punished, and the other is that by punishing them, punitive gestures, you can actually you can get rid of them. And I, I don't think either of them is 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 valid. What we have to do is steel ourselves to appreciate what the risks are, and then confront them. Um, and I think to that extent, the ANC is, is cynical to say that it's none of its business. It is the ANC's business. It is the president's business. It's our business. We speak up about it. Um, but not necessarily rely on punitive gestures or fines or terms of imprisonment or charges laid wherever we've got to deal with it here at home on home ground. Uh, just just to clarify, the the ANC's statement on this in response to the yeah. fact that the DA has also kind of included them in the uh, 
and, and that mm. Musk has kind of included them in the discussion was that uh, uh, the DA was ridiculous and bordering on lunacy and that they must address address this with the EFF and leave the ANC out of it. The ANC, yeah. the ANC cannot be held accountable for statements of other <laughs> political parties. Uh, and then went on to say that the DA has been making, quote, racist, race-baiting statements on policies such as BE. Mm. Um, Marius, when we talked about this in the pre-show chat, we sort of... I don't know. There's there's a kind of a weariness uh, 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 over talking about this for us. Not because you know we're worried about uh, uh, about what we may say or what people may say about us talking about this, but just that this has been such a ongoing thing. And Malema knows that every time he sings the song, it gets the same response. And this is exactly why he does it. Uh, it this was a kind of the the entire tone of this has been a kind of triumphant, gloating sort of thing um, that Malema really loves to do. Uh, and you, you can kind of see it, though. So he decided Malema usually doesn't respond to people on Twitter unless he kind of really feels like it. But he felt the need to respond to Elon Musk, and he said um, in Pedi, and and I'm taking the translation of News 24 here to be correct. Uh, in response to Elon Musk's quote, quote uh, he said, "You are talking shit." Um, so, <laughs> Morris, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I mean, as you said on the show before. We all knew that he was going to say something like this before the rally. You know, nobody thought that he's suddenly going to say, you know, guys, I've changed my mind. Uh, you know, I actually really like white South Africans. Everybody's welcome here, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm going to change everything. I, I actually support the free market now. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's just, you know, it's just to wind people up. And you knew it's going to get headlines. And that's exactly what's happened. Everybody's reacting mm-hmm. to this. And this isn't a new thing. Julius Malema has been doing this for years. You know, it's – and uh, – I mean, I'm not uh, the biggest fan of this kind of thing, but also I think it's very, in a democracy, you've got to be very careful about, uh, you know, restricting what people say. And it's very hard to prove that there's a direct link between what Julius Malema says and terrible violence against farmers, whether it's black farmers or white farmers, whatever the case is. I mean, but if the uh, old South African flag is hate speech, then it's quite difficult to argue that uh, saying kill the boer is not hate speech. But I think that's where you really need to... to err on the side of a maximum amount of freedom, I think. Yeah. It's all about the issue of, you know, the best uh, disinfectant is light. You know, you don't want people to be feel victimized by they can't say certain things or whatever. You, and a, a lot of people have now, I mean, around the world, who probably maybe would have been um, kind of uh, sympathetic to Julius Malema and, you know, they would like bought this kind of rhetoric that because of colonialism, there needs to be things like EWC and so on. I think it's very hard for even lefties in the West now to defend the uh, Julius Malema and the EFF. I mean, there's been all, you know, that's uh, been all of the media of the whole world. And I mean, you know, uh, Elon Musk really came and made a, um, you know, he really ampl- amplified it, which in a way has made a mistake. But I think it was also quite interesting. I saw there was a tweet from Adam Abib, who uh, he's definitely, I mean, you'd call him a lefty, but he's actually always been quite opposed to this kind of race baiting from the EFF. And he said uh, about uh, the, the uh, he, uh, he included a clip of Julius Malema singing Kill the Boer at Israeli night. And he tweeted, there's a lot of nonsensical defense of this being as part of our liberatory cultural heritage. Singing this today is pure racial baiting. It's an attempt to make some citizens feel as they do not belong. It's juvenile reactionary politics at its worst and will destroy South Africa, which I think was quite a powerful statement by Adam Abib there. Mm-hmm. And generally, I agree with him, I think. And then just uh, two, um, two other points uh, just about what happened over the weekend, I think. Uh, I think, I mean, I didn't watch it because I don't like the effort, but from the clips I've seen on Twitter and so on, it seemed like it was very, uh, very slickly managed and so on. So, I mean, you know, it was 
pretty, pretty well done by the EFF. But if you look at uh, how they've been doing in by-elections and polls and so on, the EFF really seems to have hit a ceiling. And as we've said, yeah. they actually, I mean, they got zero votes in a ward recently in Pumalanga. Okay, it's not the kind of ward you expect them to well in. It was kind of a white middle-class ward, but still, that's still what's been happening. And in other wards around South Africa, we'd expect them to do a little bit better. They're still only, you know, being flat compared to 2021 or even going backwards. And polls seem to indicate the same kind of thing. So, uh, and, uh, and finally... Um, I'm not sure how keen even the uh, EFF is on a, a possible coalition with the ANC after the election next year. We saw what they were saying they're going to lock up the ANC uh, ANC leaders. Ramaphosa is going to be one of the people they're going to lock up, and that's not really the kind of thing you want to say if you're going to if you think of going into coalition with a political party. And I've always made the point. Well, I, mean, I, I think it's also because they they don't always take. Uh, let's just say they have a flexible relationship with the truth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course. But I mean, the thing is, if during the transition pre-1994, if, if Nelson Mandela and someone are saying, you know, if Clark is going to uh, go, go on trial and all this kind of thing, uh, you know, Magnus Malani is going to be put to death or be in jail for the rest of his life, I think they would have made the things a little bit more difficult during the uh, coalition, or not coalition negotiations, but the transition negotiations. Yeah. And I think this shows as well the EFF, uh, as I say, I'm not sure how interested they are in actually having any kind of real political power. Yeah, they definitely. I think. I think in my mind, the EFF is far more concentrated on getting into power through some sort of coalition. Uh, I, I think that in reality, this is just my speculation. But my speculation is that they actually don't. They're not aiming to become the second or third biggest political or second biggest political party anymore. That they are firmly focused on using political negotiation by holding onto their base to to get power through a coalition or something like that. Um, I will say about the song, so, you know, the Equality Court says it's not incitement to violence, uh, which is prohibitive, of course, or hate speech. That's going uh, back to court. It's being appealed. And so the legal battle over all of that will continue. But I will say that for me, always this song or this chant has a very, it's, I think, I think a lot of the defenses of this are kind of in bad faith because when I was at school, we actually used to basically sing Kill the Boer as a school war crime. Now, we changed the words. The words were kill the chicken. Uh, but the, the cadence was exactly the same, right? And when you're in a crowd and you're chanting in that way, it really gets your blood up. Like, the, the, the words were changed to something that was completely sort of apolitical and, and uh, you know, the, the context was stripped out. Most of the people singing didn't even know that this was basically kill the poor with the words changed. And yet the sort of excitement and energy and kind of boyish, violent kind of uh, energy that it pulled forth from the crowd was intense, which is why the, the school would sing it as a war cry. And so when people kind of talk about this as, oh, you know, it's a, it's a liberation song. They're being disingenuous. It's a, <laughs> it's a chant to get people riled up. Uh, and so that's why, um, regardless of whether the court says that it's incitement of violence or not, or hate speech or not, I have always seen this as being very much flirting. You're pushing the real, you're really pushing on the lines of what is incitement. Uh, 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 and, and that's why I, you know, that's that's one of the things I think is so malevolent about this is that it's it's kind of got this defense of saying, oh no, it's, it's, it's part of history. It's the Martin Bailey defense where you say, no, it's part of history, but then you, when, when you're attacked, but uh, you leave it kind of more open to interpretation when you're out in the field. Um, I don't know. That's a bit of a tangent there, but uh, Michael, what do you, what do you make of this? Hmm. Uh, I mean, 
Yeah, <clears throat> I, I agree with all the all the points raised, um, and I, I think there's some sympathy among our, our listeners too. That you know, it's you, you you take it seriously up to a point, but uh, you know, we, we, nobody really expected him to say anything other than what he has said. Um, the fact is, the electoral performance of the EFF suggests that South Africa is not the kind of country that warms to this kind of idea. We, people are not swarming to him in great numbers, despite the fact that there's very considerable immiseration. Uh, one of the comments in the in the um, in the in the whatever chat. it is, stream, stream in the chat. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving my age away. Um, it says, you know, we, we're a society that pretends we're interested in inequality, but we aren't really. Our research over and over again at the IRR and the CRA shows that, you know, we're still a hugely divided society. Um, and these are the things that we ought to be talking about. Sensibly, rashly, what are the solutions? What are the policies that are really going to work to help lift people out of, out of this poverty instead of all this nonsense? Um, and and we're very lucky that in fact we appear to be a society that's not um, wildly excited about uh, why you know stirred up by uh, the, this kind of rhetorical nonsense right. that we hear from Lemma. Uh, specifically, when people are asked, you yeah. know, should all South Africans, South Africans of all races, be kind of be work together to make the country better? That is still a very popular viewpoint, and it yeah. has been for decades. Exactly. Um, and as long as that holds, I think the country has a very good chance. Of of holding <clears throat> together. Um, okay, yeah. let's move on to our next story. And this is about coalition politics. Um, so we've been watching with interest how the coalitions around the country have uh, been trying to stabilize themselves. The anti-ANC coalition came into power in an awful lot of municipalities across the country, um, most notably, oh, we've just lost Morris, um, most notably in uh, Gauteng, although they've since lost uh, two of those three municipalities. Um, being uh, Ekerlini and Joburg. Uh, but it does seem to me as though there has been a bit of stabilization um, in the way that these things are going. So we've talked recently about how the DA in Tsoane wants to create a deputy mayor position to give to Action SA to kind of cement them more closely into the coalition there. Um, and now we're seeing a similar thing in KZN where the IFP is going to be giving the DA deputy mayor positions in in in, in some places um and this is something that the was very happy about uh they said that, uh, uh, their provincial chairperson dean mcpherson said the da has seen that with a closer working relationship with the ifp that they are proving to voters that parties can work together to keep the anc and eff out of power deliver services and provide an alternative governance for the province now this is of course very pro important for those two parties in KZN, because I think regardless of what else happens in the national vote, uh, KZN is very likely to be in, uh, possibly have a coalition government between the IFP, the DA, and maybe some other parties as well. So, Maurice, uh, what do you make of this story about the deputy mayor in KZN that the DA has just gotten? Yeah, I think uh, there's, I don't think there's too much to say about it, but I just think it shows that this DA IFP coalition is kind of starting to coalesce. And I think, you know, that's. For better or worse, that's something that is unfortunately going to be an issue in um, coalitions, whether it's uh, an ANC-led coalition next day or one that's got the opposition. You know, positions are going to be an important thing. Uh, and I think this is definitely a way of, you know, sweetening the kind of DAIFP uh, pact. Uh, I think in uh, other parts of the country, I mean, obviously in KwaZulu-Natal, the IFP is probably going to be the leading party in any 
opposition coalitions in the rest of the country is probably going to be the DA who will need the IFP's uh, kind of assistance. So, yeah, I think it's uh, just something that's quite interesting. And it remains to be seen whether this uh, coalition, how strong it will be and whether it will be uh, able to uh, hold together. We've seen, we, we know that coalition has been pretty uh, ropey in parts of South Africa. But that said, in KwaZulu-Natal, DA and IFP have seemed to work together pretty well. And uh, as in with a, a lot of coalitions in other parts of the country as well, places like Western Cape, coalitions have seemed to be pretty stable. It seems to be bigger issues have been in Gauteng with the metros and so on, where there have been real issues. So overall, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, obviously quite a good thing for the kind of Moonshot Pact or the Wild Dogs Coalition, whatever you want to call it. And, and I think it's also quite a pragmatic way of looking at it. I mean, as I say, I think positions are going to be a big deal in um, uh, coalitions uh, going forward in South Africa. And I've uh, suggested it before. Maybe what South Africa is going to have to be start looking at is this kind of rotational uh, uh, position uh, thing that happens in Israel. Uh, Ireland also does it. So what happens is parties will come to uh, get into a coalition and say, okay, so-and-so from this party, you're going to be prime minister for 12 months then our guy is going to be prime minister for 12 months and you take turns. And I think, you know, for pragmatic reasons, maybe opposition coalition is going to have to start thinking about that kind of thing, you know. Let's say for argument's sake that we do have a opposition coalition that gets more than 50 cent of the vote uh, next year. You know, I think maybe <laughs> we would have to consider a thing where the DA says, okay, we're going to, John Stiena is going to be president for 18 months, then we're going to let Herman Mashaba have a go, and then we're going to let... Uh, or Peter Grunewald or whoever have a go. I mean, obviously that's a bit uh, maybe pie in the sky at the moment, but I think that's definitely something that uh, is going to have to be considered uh, to have these kind of rotational and kind of innovative ways of uh, running coalitions. Right, and and if, you know, if the DA and AIFP find that they actually are working together well in other places on the sort of more local level, a deal like that is going to become more likely because the DA might say, okay, look, you know, we're the biggest party, but we'll give up the presidency, we'll give up the deputy presidency or whatever um, to, to the IFP because uh, we actually know that we can trust working with them. Um, Michael, what, what do you make of all this? It does seem like, at least on the anti-ANC side, the coalitions have stabilized. So far, the coalitions have mostly held together on the sort of pro-ANC side, the EFF, ANC, ATM, PA uh, coalitions that have kind of been formed around uh, around the country. But uh, there's there's news of, of sort of ructions there. What do you make of the landscape at the moment? Mm, I, you know, it's a process, I suppose, of settling into what is now clearly going to be the, the, you know, the permanent style of our politics. It's going to be much more pragmatic, as you say. It's going to be based on, on coalescing and, and making deals and so on. Um, so I think a very good sign. I, I've, I remember Maurice writing just quite recently about his idea of the rotational um, positions, which I think is, it's, it's, it's clearly worked uh, worked in Ireland and elsewhere, um, and perhaps is, is this kind of thing that we, we need to be looking at, a very practical measure that effectively shares um, the goodies and the prestige and the status and so on across the parties that are willing to work together. Um, so that that perhaps is something that needs to be looked at. Um, and I think the other point to, to reinforce is that, you know, your comment right at the end of our last discussion saying that, you know, the polling, our polling and, and other polling uh, by Afrobarometer, I think, has shown, you know, this, willing, this, this keenness for South Africans to work together and to see their futures being a collaborative one. 
um, this is this is it um, manifest. You know, it's it's um, it 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 counters the sort of what has tended to be, I think, a popular misconception of the failure of coalitions. Coalitions are, in fact, you know, beginning to sh to, sh to bear fruit, and certainly beginning to hang together. And, and uh, yeah, but we'll see how the voters uh, view them. Um, it's been yeah. a They've lost a lot of time, <laughs> I think, particularly yeah, in, yeah. in, in Tony, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in turning things around. So we'll have to see what the electoral electoral impact is. But I think uh, things are looking better for the sort of anti-ANC coalition than they have for a while now. Um, yeah, I would just one last part on that. We, I don't think we've actually discussed this. And um, Marius, I don't know if you uh, if, if you want to just chip in on this one recently. But our, our former our former CEO, Franz Cronier, is... Uh, uh, new outfit, the Social Research Foundation, did some uh, polling, which suggested that, at least in the Western Cape, um, the ANC is falling apart at the expense of the EFF, although it's still, it's not like either party is going to do so well. And so with their uh, 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 modeling, which found, uh, uh, assuming a 66% turnout in the next election, the DA got 64% of the poll, the ANC 13, the EFF 15, and the African Christian Democratic Party at five. Um, that seems to be another positive sign for the anti-ANC coalition, uh, that the EFF and ANC are sort of cannibalizing each other a little bit. Uh, what do you make of this, Morris? Uh, yeah, uh, I think it was, uh, and I, when I saw that poll, I haven't seen the uh, actual, um, uh, any reports in the poll itself, I just heard uh, from people talking about uh, and news articles about it. Uh, I think, I find those numbers, uh, I've taken them with a bit of a pinch of salt. Uh, but DA got, I think, 55% in the last provincial election. So if you got 64%, that'd be nearly 10 percentage points increase, which would be pretty good. But I don't see that really happening with happening with by-elections and so on. Uh, you know, the other political parties, such as the PA, which could be taking some of the votes from so, the DA. Uh, just to be clear, one of the points that this research does very much point out is that in their polling, they asked voters to distinguish between a national and provincial ballot. And the things I just read out were for the provincial ballot, where the DA did a lot better than um, it did on the national ballot. Yeah, I know there is some vote splitting in with South Africa, but I don't know how common it is. I mean, it's fairly common, but I don't know if it would make such a difference. And just, yeah, I mean, I'll be very surprised if the EFF outpolls the ANC uh, in any province in South Africa. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, but if the ANC only comes third in the Western Cape, then there'd be a real blow for the party. And I think if it's only getting 13 or 14% in the mm -hmm. Western Cape, that means it's probably only looking at about 40% in uh, overall in South Africa. So it'd be quite something. And also something I've said on the show before, I think if, uh, say, the Western Cape was its own country and they'd start off with the exact same kind of politics it had in 1994, I don't think the ANC would exist now. The ANC's barely exists in the Western Cape now, and I think the only reason it does exist is because there's a kind of a big mother party that exists in the rest of the country. And the party itself isn't even, um, you know, it's not even holding provincial con uh, conferences and so on. So, but yeah, I mean, I think it also shows you that the ANC is dead in the Western Cape. And, you know, it could, uh, uh, could be a sign for what's going to happen in the party in the long run in the rest of the country, maybe. Yeah, no, definitely it seems like they're in trouble down there. Uh, okay, um, let's move on to our last story, and this is an international one, and one that I think uh, we're not going to say that much about because there's a lot of unknowns, and it's not a part of the world that I think any of us know that well, but this is the trouble in West Africa. So the last couple of years has seen a number of military coups uh, in Guinea, in Mali, 
in Burkina Faso and uh, now the latest one in Niger or Niger. Um, I'm not actually sure what the correct pronunciation is in English. Uh, but anyway, so with the recent coup in Niger, which overthrew the democratically elected president, the first president in Nigerian history to ever uh, be passed power peacefully, so he was, you know, that's quite a milestone for the country. Um, the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, is threatening to intervene militarily in Niger to uh, restore the democratically elected president and overturn the coup. There's a lot going on here because uh, one as one of the justifications for the coups in West in these West African countries has been the government's inability to deal with the uh, raging uh, uh, Islamist insurgencies being carried out by ISIS and Al Qaeda across the region, um, which have carried out over a thousand terrorist attacks in the in the area uh, in the in the first half of this year. Um, there seems to be a kind of total disintegration of security status there. There were peacekeeping troops assisting the former governments of those countries, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, um, from France, and even a few from the United States. I think there's about 2,600 troops from France and the United States in Niger. Um, and yet the Islamist insurgency has uh, been, only been continuing. And so it looks like this there's now kind of geopolitics getting involved the new governments are all very anti-french and seem to be more amenable to russia and particularly to the wagner group although russia's relationship to the wagner group is now itself a complicated thing uh, based on what's happened in the past couple of months but that be that as it may um the the upshot of all this is that very potentially we're looking at a conflict between the remaining states of ECOWAS, which is places like nigeria ghana um, Ivory Coast and Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, which have all basically said that they will stand together if there is a military intervention to overturn the coup in Niger. Maurice, uh, what do you make of this? It's crazy. Yeah, it's uh, pretty concerning. And I think it's all pretty complex involvement of the Wagner group and all that kind of thing. And I think if, and the um, ECOWAS kind of has form of this kind of thing. Uh, ECOWAS has intervene militarily in a lot of places in uh, West Africa. So it's definitely not beyond the realms of possibility that it'll get involved here. And I think that is, if uh, there is kind of an interstate war in um, South Af um, in West Africa, it's something that's uh, quite concerning. Uh, wars between states have been fairly rare in Africa. Uh, you know, the, probably, uh, I mean, the last really big one was uh, the Congo War in the late 90s and early 2000s, which, according to some people, was probably the biggest global conflict since World War II, and we know there's still lots of problems in the DRC, uh, still because of uh, what happened in that war. But I think if uh, we have a kind of an interstate war in uh, West Africa, it's going to cause, it's going to have some big consequences for uh, not just Africa, but the rest of the world. I think we're going to see even more refugees trying to go to Africa and, I mean, go to Europe and other parts of Africa. Could have some... Uh, some some coming uh, to South Africa, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We could also have issues with oil supply. We know West Africa is also a big uh, supplier of oil and so on. It could also create more bases for uh, jihadis to, uh, you know, uh, operate safely. You know, if uh, there's more chaos and disruption in uh, West Africa and it's harder for security forces to intervene there. And I think uh, it's also uh, we, we might even see involvement of uh, other countries that fancy themselves of, uh, as kind of the new great powers. China and India maybe even could start getting involved there. 
So I think things are kind of a knife edge there. It's definitely something to watch. I mean, it's not great for uh, the people who live there, but I think it's uh, quite interesting for us if you find this kind of thing interesting. So, Michael, it really does seem like the world has kind of entered one of those, uh, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the idea that we go through sort of cycles of stability and disintegration. And it really does seem like 2020 may have been the start of a cycle of, 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 of chaos. And, you know, we've seen now the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've seen... Um, uh, increasing tensions over Taiwan. Uh, and now looks like we may have at least some kind of open conflict between states in West Africa and, uh, and, and, and at the very least, the continuing uh, insurgencies in those countries, which have which have destabilized them to a fair degree. I mean, what do you make of all this? It really does look like we're heading for a kind of chaotic period in world affairs. Mm. I suppose I'm, uh, I tend to, to view all of world history as a sort of constant process of, of chaos and, 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 and uh, you know, moments of, of equilibrium. But I, I tend to think of equilibrium as a kind of unnatural condition uh, of nature. Um, but nevertheless, it, there are degrees of intensity. And it's interesting to me often how, you know, at one conflict or, or set of tensions can lead to, to others and the fact that the Wagner group is is involved in Africa it has been involved in in, uh, in in Russia and Ukraine there's a there's a kind of connection here um, are those people are those societies feeling that the Wagner group is because it's more brutal or more better armed or whatever the reason are, are they more effective in countering artist incursions? Uh, and the French, one doesn't know, but um, all these sort of things do complicate it, and people line up their loyalties and their uh, their, their alliances, um, and it creates yeah creates a, a, a tension which uh, which is worrying. Indeed, uh, so I think <clears throat> the deadline for when um, the the coup is supposed to return the president to power is I think this Sunday. So uh, the next development will probably only happen after that. But we'll have to see what happens. Um, anyway, we're out of time. So thank you very much uh, for, for listening. We hope that you found this sort of thought-provoking. Uh, and we will see you tomorrow on the Daily Friend Show. It'll be a Daily Friend wrap episode. Cheers, everyone.